The second reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 22, beginning at verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Here ends the reading. Thank you, um, Stephen. Let's, uh, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it speaks to our heart. This morning, we pray for understanding of your word and help us, Lord, to apply it in our own lives. I pray for myself that you forgive me my sins and help me to share this word with a humble heart in response to your grace with your precious people. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear friends, what a joy for us today to hear the testimonies of both Jonathan and Isaac as they profess their faith in Christ and their love for him this morning. I think it's always exciting for us to hear testimonies. Is that not the case? To hear testimonies of how God has worked in people's lives and drawn, uh, drawn them unto himself in a marvelous way. It's encouraging to hear testimonies because we know that our God is a living God and that he brings people out of darkness into his marvelous light by his amazing grace and that salvation we know is a gift from God alone. We cannot earn it. We don't deserve it. God himself opens our hearts to receive the gift of salvation. It is by grace through faith in Christ alone. So we rejoice, we celebrate, and it is our prayer that both Jonathan and Isaac will grow up to be men that love and serve 
Christ. That is our prayer for you guys. We pray that that will be, by God's grace, a fulfillment in your own lives. This morning we're going, uh, going to look at one of the greatest commandments that we have in the scriptures as we wrap up our series on the Ten Commandments. And this passage fits in well, I believe, uh, with also the profession of faith in Christ we witness today. Now look at this passage um, and focus our thoughts on verses 35 to 38. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the second aspect of the commandment, that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this morning, I want to look at this passage uh, under the following headings, the question, the test, the law. Uh, We have the answer that is given, love God, why and how. Now, the immediate context tells us that there are four questions that were put to Jesus with the sole intention of trapping Jesus and to see if if he would really slip up. The first three questions were these. They questioned him on his authority. Tell us about your authority. They questioned him about paying taxes. Uh, this is the time that we might be filling in our tax returns, right? We pay to the government what is theirs and we keep back what is ours. And Jesus responded very well to their question about paying taxes. And then about the resurrection and marriage and whether there will be remarriage, uh, whether people will get married in heaven, and the whole concept of the resurrection itself. And notice that Jesus' answer to the Sadducees' question was so successful that they did not ask him any questions, any further questions. But then we come to a very interesting question. This is the fourth one regarding the law, or perhaps the Ten Commandments. There are other commentators who would say that there are So many commandments in the Old Testament, over 600 odd commandments. Uh, There might be a reference to that, but perhaps I think the reference here is to the Ten Commandments. And the fourth question that was put to Jesus was also with the intention to trap him and to make him slip big time. To slip up big time. And this question is by an expert in the law. Uh, Some uh, translations might have it as the person is a lawyer. And so this lawyer comes up with a tricky question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now this question is a theological question. It had to do with God. It was a theologically focused question because the other questions were about taxes and resurrection, about marriage in heaven, but this one directly about God. Which is the greatest commandment. It's, it's, it had to do uh, with God. This is an acknowledgement of God in this question. And we could assume, my dear friends, that the teacher of the law knew his Old Testament. In fact, this guy addressed Jesus as a teacher. And in doing so, he acknowledged that Jesus was a great teacher. But he posed a tricky question to Jesus regarding the greatest commandment. And I think, I think what he was essentially asking Jesus was to single out which was the best commandment from the Ten Commandments. 
And if Jesus chose to single out one, that would mean that nine of the ten commandments were basically null and void. A tricky question, isn't it? It was a question meant to trap Jesus. The question should have been perhaps along these lines. Teacher, tell us what we can do to keep the commandments given what God has done for us. That would have been a better question. But no, this one is a legalistic question. What is the greatest commandment when he knew all along that the Ten Commandments are equal in every aspect? And now how did Jesus essentially respond to such a question? See, Jesus, it's quite interesting here in the passage, in answering this man's question, takes him back to the words of Moses, the words that Moses spoke to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We have these words for us in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God. These are the commands, decrees, and laws. You are to teach this to your children. And then I'm keeping moving on for the purpose of time this morning. It says this in verse 3. Hear, O Israel, and be careful so that it may go well with, the, with you in the land that, that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel. Remember that? Hear, O Israel. This is in the Hebrew, the Shema. Hear, O Israel. And the teacher of the law would have known this. This is one of the greatest aspects of the Old Testament God and the people of Israel would have known this phrase, Hear, O Israel, that the Lord our God is one. This is a tremendous uh, proclamation of who God is. And then he says this, the Lord your God, the, sorry, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And in verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But Jesus did more than that. He quoted the most familiar words of the Shema. Hear, O Israel. And the lawyer would have known this. So here is the passage, friends. Moses reminds the Israelites to teach their children to fear God because of what he had done. And we know what God had done. What has he done? In a Bible study on Friday morning, we are looking at Exodus chapter... Oh, my Bible study group, tell me. I hope you've not forgotten that. Exodus chapter 15 and 14. Oh, I heard a 14 there. We look at part of 14, part of 15. It's about the song. The song of deliverance. Remember that? Look at Exodus. We've been studying the book of Exodus in our growth groups, right? And what Exodus chapter 15, it's a massive song of deliverance. And God has done a great work and people are singing out. Singing out God's amazing work. That he has redeemed them. That he has separated the waters of the Red Sea and he parted the waters and we came out victoriously and they are singing out in praise. Friends, God brought his people amazingly out, out of slavery from Egypt and God kept his word. And in doing so, he confirmed his love and his relationship with his people. And so when Moses calls on the people to love the Lord their God, they understood what it meant. Now maybe I'm going a bit too fast this morning. Slow me down if I'm going too fast because I was in Sri Lanka the past three weeks we spoke so much of Sinhalese and English that I go so fast, you need to slow me down if I'm going too fast, all right? 
What we have here is a passage that tells us about God's amazing love for his people. A covenant relationship that God had established with his people through Abraham. And that's the context in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And when Jesus answered this Jewish teacher of the law, he reminded him of who God is. God who keeps his word and therefore calls us to love him. Question this morning. Why love God? You ask the average person on the street today in our great city of Melbourne, the most livable city in the world. Did you know that? Last week. You're given the, the privilege of being the most livable city in the world. You're going to ask them, should we love God? Why love God? I don't know what kind of response you're going to get from them. Well, let's ask a question for, from Christians this morning. Why love God? The question could be asked, why do we need to love God? It seems so abstract. And yet we are called to love God. You know, how could we love God when we've never even seen Him? How can you love someone or something that you've never met? You've never seen. It seems so abstract. How do we even know that God exists? There might be someone here might be questioning the very existence of God. Now, it's not my intention this morning to go down this topic for the existence of God. But let me make a couple of observations about the existence of God. Professor John Lennox, in his excellent book, I don't know whether you've read it, some of you may have. It's called God's Undertaker as Science Buried God. I think we read part of the book in our series of trying to uh, deal with the existence of God, right? Uh, John Lennox is a fantastic guy. He's a Christian guy committed to Christ. He's a highly uh, recognized professor in, uh, in in the U.K., And he speaks about a rational intelligibility of the universe. And he makes the point that this universe has a rational intelligence behind its entire existence. And uh, uh, in his book, he says, uh, let me quote, he says this, that rational intelligibility is the bedrock belief upon which all intellectual inquiry is built. I shall argue that theism gives it a consistent and reasonable justification, whereas naturalism seems so powerless to do so. So that is, naturalism does not show us anything about the existence of God or the work of God in creation. Theism does it. Another guy, this guy won uh, the great award uh, in physics, uh, the physicist. He says this, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing. One with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the right conditions required to permit life. And one which has an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. This is coming from a secular guy. (laughs) So we know this. Our God is... I just put that in this morning because you might ask the question, why I love God? Well, remind us this morning that God is an amazing God. He's created this world. Isn't that wonderful? You take time to enjoy the beauty of his creation. We're coming into spring soon. I know the hay fever will come upon us, those who suffer with hay fever. But it's a wonderful time, okay, to see once again the four seasons that we have. The God is an amazing God. And we believe that there is a creator. The evidence is observed in creation. 
And then we apply by God's grace, the faith comes into focus. And we believe that God exists by faith. There is a supernatural revelation of God in general, cre- in, in general revelation in creation. And then there is the, the, the revelation of God in his word, the scriptures. And God has finally spoken to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Can we see that? Yes, we have the Bible that clearly tells us that. So let's come to the question on the basis of this, uh, of this command that we have that Jesus says, love the Lord your God. See, God has revealed himself graciously to mankind and we are without excuse. And so in response to that, we are called to love this God. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 to the teacher. And sadly, the point is missed by this man. We read in Mark that when Jesus answered this man's question in Mark chapter 12, the lawyer responded by saying this. Well said, teacher, the man replied. Well said. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This guy is saying that. And then look at what Jesus said to him. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. So my friends, how should we love God? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And here it is that Jesus says to us clearly this morning in the passage that we have, Jesus replied and said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. First commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 we have this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Is there a variation here? Is there a variation? There's mind, there's strength, right? Seems to be a variation, right? Now, one commentator says this, We must not view these slight variations as points of tension or disagreement. The variations show that we should love the Lord with all our faculties. So with your heart, Bible perspective, your very being. Your soul, your emotions, your mind, your thinking faculties. One writer puts it very well. R.T. France has written a fantastic uh, new commentary that's come out of Matthew. I haven't purchased it as as yet. It's pretty expensive. But anyway, this is what this guy says. Uh, Heart, soul, and mind are not three different parts of man, but different ways of thinking of the whole man in his relation to God. No clear distinction can be drawn between them. It's the total person. So put together, it's the whole person. It is the person's ultimate loyalty. And this is the call by Jesus to love God this way with our total person. This is the great commandment. Why? Because when a person, what, what happens when a person, I mean, have you seen when a, you know, a couple meets together for the first time and they fall in love? We've seen a few of those, haven't we, in this congregation? Oh, there's that initial buzz as love is in the air. Uh, they are on cloud nine, right? And you see the you see the love, and you feel the love. It's there, and they want to be together all the time because they're in love, and that's wonderful. And to married couples here this morning, I hope you are in love with each other as well. And you continue to be in love with your spouses. Because it's an ongoing thing, this love thing, right? And when you love somebody, what do you want to do? You want to be with that person? You want to, you look, 
I mean, guys, guys, come on. You're going out with a girl, you run to the car, you open the door for her, play the nice cool game, all right? And you want to do everything you want to please the person. I don't know what happens after marriage, but we won't ask her. To to <laughs> okay, and you want to love the person, you want to be there. And you, this is why God, Jesus is saying, love the Lord your God, because your desires become for the Lord. It becomes a love that you have for him, and you want to serve him, and your love is not something that is cold and irrational, and something that is lukewarm, and that is so, so stoic. It is a love that is flowing from the heart. Alright? That's what happens. Now, let me say this. What a challenge this commandment is. Now, none of us can love perfectly because our hearts are affected by sin. There was only one person who loved God perfectly and kept the Ten Commandments perfectly, and that was his son, Jesus Christ. He and he alone loved the Lord perfectly, loved his Father perfectly. We know this. But we are called, in the midst of our imperfections, to love God. And how is it possible? What's the motivation, friends, to love our God? Why love God? Is he in need of our love? Uh, Is God kind of in need of my loves to make him complete? Of course not. He's all sufficient, right? He doesn't need my love and your love for him to be, oh, I'm now so happy because Chris Rivera said he loves me. He doesn't have to do that. He's totally sufficient in himself. He's the all-sufficient God. But he calls us to love him in response to what he did. And if we had to earn God's love, then it will indeed be hard for us to obey this command. But his love is unconditional. It's an unconditional love. Let me say this, you know. For example, if a parent would say to his or a child, young people here this morning, now, I will love you only if you get 99.95 as your enter score. Or if you do well in soccer, basketball, netball, you become the star, only then I will love you. You know, the child may obey, but will perhaps not love the one whose love is so manipulative and controlling. But God's love is not like that. God requires to love him and he provides for us to do so by making his love an unconditional gift. Right? And so God requires us to love him and he provides for us by making this unconditional gift because God so loved the world. Complete the text. That he gave his that whoever believes in him should not perish but have lasting life. That is God's love. You see what he does? You see what he does? See, God's love is so wonderful. And when we ask the question, why should we love God? Then let me point you to this, friends. 1 John chapter 4.10 This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice. And 1 John 4.19 We love because, why? Because he first loved. You see, he first loved. Always remember that. You did nothing, I did nothing to gain God's love. All right? I did nothing to gain God's favor. Salvation, as I said, from beginning to end is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. And it is God who opens our hearts to receive His love. It is His work completely. And so God has poured out His love because He has first loved you. Do you ever feel unloved? Have you ever, ever in your life felt unloved? 
Think about it. Have you ever felt unwanted? You see, God is saying to us this morning, I have loved you with an unconditional love, an amazing love, and he has first loved us. See, God takes the initiative to love and gives us the gift of faith to trust him. Loving God will make no sense without the cross of Christ. The atoning death of Jesus provides the means by which we enter a relationship in which love is received and expressed. And we can't manufacture this kind of love. Because if you are to do that, then you'll say, Oh, look at me. I'm so good. I love God. I'm the greatest guy ever. Nonsense. You can't do it. Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 tells us this. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts. How? By his Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Do you see the point? See, when a person by God's grace and by spirit seeks to love God with heart, soul and mind, their lives will show forth that kind of love and passion for the Lord. It will be a warm heart. Let me ask you this morning. Spiritually speaking, is your heart warm for the Lord? Or is it cold? Is it lukewarm? Is it so indifferent? I don't know. I don't know. They'll be warm. This passage just threw out a challenge to us this morning. And the challenge is this. Do we love the Lord our God? Let me be more specific. Do you? I'm addressing every individual here this morning, including myself. Do I love the Lord my God? Do we really love him with a heart, a soul, a mind, imperfect as it may be? Because God knows our hearts. He knows our motives. He sees deep into the very recess of our souls. And loving God with all our soul, mind and heart, everything, our strength, will mean something, friends. Let me show you what it means for a moment. It will mean radical living, alright? It will mean it will change your priorities in life. I had to work this one through. I was in Colombo just two weeks ago. I have my friends, my, my family. They're living very different lifestyles to me. Guys that I've grown up, they're living a, a lifestyle that is full on with everything provided for them. You name it, they have it. And I'm sitting there trying to work this thing out. As a Christian, I'm a pastor. I'm a different lifestyle. Where does this all fit in? I'm just, I'm not putting myself up. I'm just using an example. You'll be the same as as a Christian. Your priorities will change. You begin to ask the hard questions. Why am I here? What is God's purpose for my life? How can I serve him? Where do I serve him? What do I do with this life for the rest of the life that God has given me? Can you see what, what happens? You start affecting your mind. You start affecting your priorities. You start changing the jigsaw puzzle pieces in your life and try to make sense of this thing called life. It will make a radical change. It will mean radical service. It will mean, I want to serve my Lord. When was the last time you said, Oh God, I just want to thank you that you've loved me so much. You've sent your son to die on the cross for me. I want to serve you for the rest of, I don't know, number of days, hours, years that you give me to live here. That's the thing, isn't it? It will mean radical submission of our lives to him in the decisions we make, in the choices we make in life. It will mean, my dear friends, praying and asking the Lord to increase our love for him. You know, I was reflecting upon this this past week. As a pastor for this congregation, I'm asking, I'm praying 
apart from everything else, that God will give us a heart of love for him. Right? That this church will be a church that loves the Lord our God. Is it too hard? No. It will mean radical gospel ministry in the church. For us as a congregation, where do we want to be in the next 12 months? Have you asked the question? You know, um, in Singapore, they were celebrating their 47th uh, celebrations as a nation. And the Prime Minister gets up there in Singapore and asks the question from the Singaporeans, where do we want to be in 20 years' time? A massive debate. I was following the debate earnestly, trying to figure out where this nation is going to be in 20 years' time. I thought for a moment in my room, I thought, here are these guys, secular guys, thinking about 20, year ministry, 20 years ahead. What about the church? What is our plan for the next 12 months in this place? What is God's plan for this church? What is God's plan for the next five years in this church? You know, where are we going to be in 20 years' time, 25 years' time, unless the Lord comes before that? I don't know. We've got to start thinking, praying, planning, radical living, radical ways we do ministry outside the four walls of this church because God is at work. Loving God means it's a heart issue, my dear friends. It comes from the heart. It's not legalism. This is what John Calvin said, in response to God's grace. This is what prompted John Calvin, the great reformer, in response to God's grace to say, My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. As we wind up this morning, I want to close with John Piper, who said this, the well-known author and pastor and theologian. This is the essence of what it means to love God. To be satisfied in Him, in Him. Loving God will include obeying all His commands. It will include believing all His word. It will include thanking Him for all His gifts. But the essence of loving God is enjoying all He is. And it is this enjoyment of God that glorifies His worth most fully. Are you enjoying God in your life? Are you loving Him? What about us this morning? Maybe there is someone here who does not know the Lord today. I don't know. And God is speaking to you and he's saying, come to me. Because I have loved you with my son Jesus Christ. Maybe there is someone here this morning who has drifted away from the faith. Your love for the Lord has grown cold and has grown weak. And maybe God is calling you this morning and saying, Love me as I have loved you. And maybe for us, God is speaking to us as a church today and asking us, how is your love for me? Have you forgotten your first love? Have you? I hope not. And I pray that God will warm our hearts today and put us aglow with the love for the Lord. And for our young people who made their profession of faith this morning, remember this text. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. For this is the greatest commandment. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray this morning that if there is anyone here who has not experienced your love, May today be the beginning 
a new journey of faith. I pray this morning if there is anyone here whose love has grown cold and callous towards you, whose heart is not warm towards you because of various things in their lives. I pray that you would draw such a person back unto yourself. I pray this morning for those of us who are journeying reasonably well in our faith, that you would prompt our hearts, Lord, to know, to love you deeper and passionately through your Holy Spirit. Would you bless your people here abundantly in Jesus' name. Amen.